Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Hi there, a little over a week from now, thousands of scientists, economists, technologists and political leaders will gather in the United Arab Emirates for the annual Conference of the Parties or COP meeting on climate to assess where we are and what needs to be done. That's what we're going to be talking about this week on Democracy Sausage with a couple of excellent guests, Professor Jeanette Lindsay and Dr George Carter. I'm Mark Kenny, and across from me here in the ANU studio is my friend Dr Maria Teflaga. Hi there, Maria. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. Now, careful listeners to this program will remember Professor Jeanette Lindsay, who is a climatologist from the ANU's Fenner School of Environment and Society in the College of Science. She gave us an excellent overview of how the global climate system functions, the role of ocean currents, pools of warm water that can form, and all the things that can cause havoc in the global environment. Also with us, I think for the first time actually on Democracy Sausage at least, is Dr George Carter, who is Deputy Head of the Department of Pacific Affairs at ANU. He's also Director of the ANU Pacific Institute, and you've probably seen him on the drama or one of those sorts of programs. Welcome to you both. It's good to be here. Alpha, thank you very much. So, George, you're heading to the United Arab Emirates for this COP meeting. I've attended these. They're enormous events. They can also be enormously disappointing at times, and there's often a lot of good intentions, but there's a pattern we really see as well where um, those intentions don't always manifest in um, in in insufficient action, and that seems to be the message that's coming out around this one. Briefly tell us what it is that you're going to be doing there, what role you're playing at this meeting. Thank you for this opportunity. So the research I look into um, here at ANU is the diplomacy of these mega conferences or multilateral negotiations. I'm fascinated in how countries states, parties, as well as stakeholders like private sector, NGOs who attend these mega conferences help to build and reach global consensus on climate change. By this, I look at not how they make agreement, but I look at the processes and relationships of how the states agree not to disagree, because that's essentially what these mega conferences are. It's a global negotiations and trying to find ways to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions, build climate action, but at the same time, build a vision for the future with the catastrophic impacts of climate change we have. 
And so I specifically look at these diplomacy of these states. So I attend these meetings really much as a research broker, both as a researcher, but also as a policy negotiator. Uh, support. Mm. So my research looks at Pacific states, but also now increasingly more, especially with a possible Australia-Pacific bid of how the role of a presidency from this part of the world can uh, articulate and create a consensus. But on the flip side, um, I provide as part of what's known as the One Crop or One Council of Regional Organizations Pacific the only academic within this group of about 30, 40 uh, technical experts that support Pacific countries. So we provide negotiation training, but also thematic training throughout the whole year. And then we provide real-time support. So we are the people behind the scenes in terms of the strategies for the Pacific, supporting leaders, uh, political champions from the Pacific, uh, technical negotiators, and global campaigns on the Pacific at these meetings. It's an enormous uh, responsibility. Isn't oh it? yeah, I'm sure it keeps you very busy. And and so, just tell our listeners, um, what's the name of the group that you're going to support in in the UAE now? So, one crop or one council of regional organisations are the group of technical experts from around the Pacific, and they. That, be- that's the acronym. Is it one crop? One crop. Yeah, that's quite clever. Yeah. Uh, well, that's acronyms for you. They're meant to be, I guess. <laughs> And it support countries in three pronged ways. So there are 14 countries from the Pacific Party to the negotiations. So one in the supporting technical negotiators, and they come under a coalition called Pacific SIDS or Small Island Developing States. They sit also within the alliance of small island states. So that's 14 countries plus the other countries from the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean makes up a, a block of 54 countries. They sit inside the G77 or the Global South of 138 countries. So that's sort of the technical support. We also support political champions. So there are eight ministers and prime ministers from the region who have been, uh, who they themselves nominated themselves to be head of thematic areas. And we provide sort of the technical speak to learn how to do climate speak, be confident in front of the camera, be confident in these negotiations, but also... They are necessary at the very last few days of negotiations. Uh, leaders are needed because there will be settings where it cannot be concluded as a technical and it moves up to a political level. And so these leaders are trained. So throughout the year, this has been part of the work collaborating with the, not directly with the ministers, but their offices in turning, but the support is there. And the third part is the pavilion. Um, So there's one united pavilion called the Moana Pacific Pavilion. And this is in collaboration with the government of New Zealand. And it's the home of Pacific uh, NGOs, private sector, to carry out. This year we have 92 side events uh, showcasing, but also um, advocating not only the solutions, but the challenges of climate change in the region. And this is where academics, um, private sector, civil society, and local community indigenous people are able to share that story. Now, this year will be the first time in collaboration with Australia that will be next to each other. This is part of building that momentum to a possible Australia-Pacific bid. So now we are working with the Australian government in terms of how to collaborate, sharing that message. How do we weave 
that momentum into moving forward to hopefully bringing that COP to this part of the world. Yeah, so that's what the bid is, the the attempt to have a COP meeting. When, when would that, is there a, a target year? 2026, so COP 31, 2026. Right, and I guess there's this enormous, this goes to a couple of things you said really, but there's enormous sort of moral leverage that the Pacific countries have in and, 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 and investment they have in the success of this program. So it's pretty important work and it would be a major way of getting the world to focus on the the effects of climate change in this part of the world, the differential effects on it, um, of having a, a, a COP meeting in this region. So Australia and uh, you, you mentioned there that Australia and New Zealand and the, and the region will be in partnership for the first time. Does that reflect the change in Australia's position in the Pacific generally. We saw the Prime Minister there recently. We know climate change, uh, the rising sea levels and these sorts of issues are just absolutely central to not just to the existence of many of these low-lying Pacific nations but also central to Australia's uh, leadership or credibility in the region as a, as a, as a key and constructive player. So presumably that's, that, that all plays in to, uh, to this idea of launching a bid for this uh, this COP meeting in 2026? The possible COP 31 2026, because we will know in the next uh, week or so. If, so that will be decided at this meeting? Um, it will be announced. Announced. It will right. be announced. Right. Um, because there are other countries also with their hands up. But Australia and Pacific have a very strong case um, for, for this announcement. But it's an anomaly for international relations. It's the first time that a region plus a country will be hosting or chairing the presidency of our negotiations. You usually have two countries. So you're pulling together your um, your diplomatic assets in, in, in bringing mm. that together. The other part that we also should look at is an acknowledgement and what we've been working on for so many years that the climate conditions in this part of the world is shared and climate impacts and how we respond to it are shared in terms of how Australia responds to disasters and humanitarian assistance in the Pacific. But we've also seen how Pacific states have also responded to the bushfires mm. in Australia. We do know and we um, acknowledge that this is a shared result, but we also take into account that there's an anomaly because you have one of the biggest economies in this part of the world which is also, you know, dependent on uh, coal and uh, minerals, mm. as well as Papua New Guinea. But you also have uh, local atoll nations, which are at the forefront of sea level rise. Yeah. So it's a huge diversity, also huge diversity in terms of economies. It's a huge diversity is a polite word. It's a huge contradiction, isn't it? In some ways. Well, others would say divergence in policies. <laughs> so it makes it that very interesting diplomatic experiment in how you try and piece together coherence inside the presidency and then how you object that in terms of building that diplomacy with a diverse set of nations, the 198 parties. So that's my fascination as an uh, international politics uh, researcher and yeah. how you build that anomaly within multilateral system of the presidency and now how you conduct that. But at the same time, it's we do under negotiators very and leaders understand the differences of national interest that these countries have in terms of it's not just a climate uh, environment decision it's also a political economy 
decision. Yeah. And how we balance that in terms of uh, the presidency and how that's balanced in terms of the negotiators is what the other fascination is. Because at one side, countries from the Pacific, we say always argue the extreme in terms of inter environmental integrity, pushing greater action. But you also have a country like Australia who acknowledges the fact that it has an economy that it needs to uh, grow and that it will grow, but also wants to be a global leader in climate change. Mm. Um, and so partnering with countries from the Pacific, I believe that diplomacy of amplifying that voice is also another way to, to see how this COP2026 would look like. Yeah, I suppose it's a, it's a surprise in a way to be having COP26 even in the UAE. So obviously some of these discussions, they're, they're, they're complicated and they're complicated by geopolitical questions, um, money. Absolutely. Um, I mean, countries like Egypt last year and Sharm el-Sheikh, as well as this year UAE, hmm. um, many observers uh, would say, and many NGOs are, not attending in boycott of yeah. uh, the fact. We understand that for those of us who follow COP meetings every year, these are countries trying to slow down the progress in slowing down climate action. But it's also when you speak to uh, leaders from this country, they also said, we acknowledge climate change. We see that we need to do work or build greater action and ambition. But at the same time, it's also fascinating to see the tactics of what they bring into the agenda. So you'll see in this year's agenda, it ranges from everything from renewable energy, incorporating um, conversations or dialogues on security. But it stays away from the point in conversation or negotiations that should be all about is greater ambition and greater action in terms of um, cutting greenhouse gas emissions, greater targets. But... The tactic here with this year and the last year is bringing everything else, encouraging everything else except the uh, the most important parts of, of what's needed to be discussed. And so some of the strategies that the Pacific go into is say, that's great, but let's focus on climate adaptation. Let's focus on mitigation and let's focus on um, loss and damage. Yeah. George, the, the agenda setting power of um, the presidency is, you know, I think, very evident, like we can just think about when the UK hosted it, the, the sort of centrality that, you know, Boris Johnson placed on that um, and the sort of policy achievements, I suppose, um, made at that COP. And so I guess what I really want to know is um, what's the origin of this structure? Why has COP been structured in this way with a sort of roving presidency rather than a sort of, I guess, a UN structure that we're more familiar with, you know, of, of, a, of a standing committee, for example? Mm. Oh, well, it's actually part of, um, uh, in part, a, a UN sort of rule in terms of the president's moves around the five region. So uh, currently we have UAE as the Asia-Pacific seat. And then next year, uh, when it moves back to Eastern Europe, right now we don't know where it is because of the war in Ukraine, but most likely could return back to Germany if um, Eastern Europe is not stable enough to host. And so it, it is one of those uh, uh, UN uh, procedures that was accepted when uh, COP uh, 
I mean, the COP for climate change was agreed to back in 1992, 1995. So one of those procedures that the president moved around. Yeah, well, I suppose it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, at one level, it sort of seems obvious that it's about the sort of emergency and inherently global nature of the problem. And so it's giving it its own structure. But as to the question is, the element of your question about the host nation having disproportionate power to you know influence the agenda that's that's a bit more mystifying isn't it i mean i suppose on one level like it's just sort of classic diplomacy or yeah. you know international politics but i get, i guess as someone who is not across um, either the climate science or international negotiations as much as our guests that is actually something that i've always actually wondered as to why why it is that this process is governed the way it does and it certainly helps to explain its relative successes and 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 its relative um, you know failures, and I I really liked your construction, George, of basically agreeing to disagree. Which I assume you, what you mean by that is to keep these talks going, right? Because it's a slow process, um, which I imagine must be quite frustrating for many activists <laughs> and climate scientists, right, as you both are. Um, and, and people who live in the low-lying Pacific nations. Indeed, who actually don't have endless <laughs> amounts of time. Can I tell a little story related to what you just said? Of course. This is something that has really stuck with me. I, I attended the COP in Copenhagen. Yeah, me too, yeah. Uh, were you there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, okay. So I took a class of students there and from ANU, and that was an incredible experience for everybody. It, it, everyone found it transformational, actually, and it's been amazing to see what those people have gone on to do since Copenhagen. However, yeah. the story that I wanted to tell was that – I remember being in one of the sessions where everyone's together and all countries are represented in the room. And I was observing that and we had observer status as an, an academic institution. And a young woman from one of the Pacific Island nations stood up and I can't remember which country she was from, but I think it, I think it might have been Tuvalu. Um, and she, she stood up and she said, I was born in 1992, and that was the year of the Rio Earth Summit at which the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change came into being and started its journey, very slow journey. She said, I was born in 1992. You've been negotiating all my life. Hmm. And what has changed? The situation is worse now than it was then. That's a, a paraphrase. Yeah. But that has really stuck with me because it, to me, it encapsulated the glacial pace of what's being achieved. I'm not denying the importance of these international negotiations. I think they are incredibly important to keep mm. the world focused and talking and engaging. They're all we've got, actually. <laughs> but at the same time, well, it's not all we've got. There's, there's other things below the fully global level of the COPs, but maybe we can talk more about that if you want to. But for me, the fact that it is so slow and that effect, it, it does um, it work on a consensual basis, so theoretically all countries have to agree on whatever is decided at the COP. The COP chair can declare something decided even if there is some dissent in the room, I know, but George will be more of an expert on that than I am. But, you know, that that is the thing that is just so hard to swallow 
because in the meantime, decades have passed in which we could have been taking decisive action as a global community, and we have not. Well, that raises an interesting question, George, and that is the extent to which, and sort of combining the, the last two points uh, that have been made, um, the, the extent to which it, the, these COP meetings are kind of characterised by a lowest common denominator, by, by a sort of, by the resistance rather than the initiative um, forces within uh, the, the each successive meeting, so that you know countries that are not prepared to agree to certain things for for reasons, and everyone argues there are differential effects on their economy. They've got different reasons why they can or can't do certain things, uh, and so you end up with this lowest common denominator rather than the kind of ambition that the science objectively tells us is critically needed. Absolutely, and that's the anomaly of. Um not just multilateral climate change, but other multilateral forums yes. that use consensus as a decision-making. Because yeah. there are other bodies that you have uh, unanimity, yeah. voting, yeah. Uh, to make decisions. Mm. But in this case, the anomaly here is that you want everyone involved. Yeah. To um, You want to pull in economy. So under Kyoto Call, Kyoto Protocol, which was the... I like the idea of merging the two words. I think that's good. Kyoto Call, that's, that's, that's going to take off. Under Kyoto Protocol, we had a compliance system, right? And so we had some movement there. But now with the Paris Agreement, it's all voluntary because we have a changing dynamics of uh, countries in this time. Back in 1992, there were only a certain number of countries who were developing, I mean, mm-hmm. developed and had um, uh, industries. Now, a country like China uh, is the second biggest polluter, and we need them to make targets and cut their emissions. Yeah. And so, so suddenly that, so, we so got a decision. Their buy-in to we the need the buy-in, yeah. as well as India and uh, yeah. South, you know, South Africa, yeah. you know, Indonesia. We need them to make targets to also be a part of, and that's part of that compromise that was agreed to in Paris. That. And it, it makes multilateralism even more frustrating, but even more needed because that's the system that there is now. As you said, if we don't have it, that's the best global. Of course, we have G20. We have, you know, regional um, discussions that like the EU, you know, that sets ambitious targets. But we also need everyone to do something. And for countries, small countries, which um, you may say have very small influence in international politics, this is the main forum that it actually has a big voice and a big influence you know, in terms of country, but also local communities. Mm. Gives them that platform to speak out and also suggest um, you know, international mechanisms or push environmental integrity to get us closer to the middle or somewhere where we choose not to disagree. But yes, of course, that's why it's, it's so slow in terms of action. But at the same time, I'm also fascinated with the relationship because of following these diplomatic relationships year after year. You can see in terms of the movement of Australia, back when I first started looking at Conference of the Parties back in uh, 2015 in Paris, back then, Australia and the United States wouldn't even talk about loss and damage. Yeah, right? That's true. Now, you know, we're talking about a mechanism or funding mechanism for loss and damage. It would have been great if they agreed to 2015. But it's, it's, it's also great to see the movement in terms of coming forth. And so that's a, another um, uh, fascination is not just looking at uh, what I call transactional consensus, but the relationship consensus. 
and that's very important now in um, international relations. Right, and that's because the bargaining proposition has changed. Like you've, you, as you've sort of said, you got all these extra actors, but I suppose you also have all of these different kinds of forums, and so it's actually a multi-level game, isn't it? Like some of it is to get specific outcomes in whatever they communicate or whatever it's called at the end of COP. But I suppose a lot of the lobbying goes on is to get the G20 to agree to this or the EU to agree to that, which will increase the pressure on COP 25 or 6 or 7, 7, 27, which will be next year somewhere in Eastern Europe slash Germany. Okay, that makes a lot of sort of sense. So it's sort of like a small, it's like a rolling ball, but it's actually across multiple fronts all at the same time. Absolutely. And so the research, while I focus on Pacific countries, is also fascinating what happens in other spaces. So you have the UNGA Climate Summit, you have the G20, um, you have APIC, and you find that um, climate change is now inserted into those major uh, forums to try and get some action. And everyone at COP, uh, who comes to COP at the end of the year, and that's <laughs> part of it being at the end of the year, there's a series of meetings and informal um, conferences that try and build that target. The people that are part of the inner core group of negotiators from key countries who are part of COP also follow this in everywhere. They're also in G20. They're also inside APEC. They're also because they're pushing for key language to try and get there um, or to try and get this on the board in terms of the declarations that come out or lack of declarations. Uh, but at, at least there's the uh, negotiations is not left to the last two weeks of the year. And that, it's carried out throughout the whole year. Yeah. And sort of woven in. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, I should just say, Maria, you said COP27, I think. Yeah. So actually, 28, this one, right? So, well, there you go. Yeah. So, so the next one will be 29. Yeah. yeah. Is that right? 29 yes. and twenty and 26 is 30, which is, is it? Or 26, no, oh, 30, 2026. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're great on numbers <laughs> We're here. really good at counting yeah, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it should be called arithmetic sausage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're not good at it. Um, now, look, let's, let's get to, I guess, what lies underneath all of this, Jeanette, which is the climate itself yeah. and the problem we have with the climate. And as you say, you used the term before, the glacial pace of it, which is sort of a good ironic term really because we're losing the glaciers as a result of this uh, inaction. Um, uh, the 
last Friday, I think it was, the global temperature was said to have gone over two degrees for the first time. Um, now, this doesn't indicate that the world's at two degrees higher than industrial, you know, since industrialization, but it's the kind of thing you would start to see happen as you approach that kind of thing. So we are in a, a very desperate situation. The UN uh, Environment Program has said that there needs to be much more dramatic action to, to, to get to 1.5. We're probably losing that already and that we need to get to the sort of, I think, 42% cuts in global emissions to have any chance of staying inside two degrees, I think. It's, uh, it's, an, you know, it's an extraordinary emergency in a way, and it's an emergency that we're kind of you know, as we've been discussing in the first half, that we're just sort of creeping up to and shimmying around and doing all kinds of things other than actually addressing it head on. So just I'll throw it to you. Where where are we with um, with global climate now? Well, where we are, um, I, I agree with you actually in calling it an emergency um, and I'd like to say something about that, but I'll park it for a second to answer your question. Um Global temperatures up until this year had risen by 1.4 degrees from pre-industrial times, right? So 1.4 degrees is kind of the the background to what we've seen happen this year. This year has been extraordinary. Yeah. 2023 has been just off the charts, literally, in in a sense, in that we've seen records be, broken. Yeah. Where it is expected to be the hottest year on record, yes. on average, for the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that is largely in due to what's happened in the Northern Hemisphere over the Northern Hemisphere summer, where we saw August, the hottest August on record, September, hottest on record, October, hottest on record. Now, Northern Hemisphere has gone into autumn and are heading towards winter, and the Southern Hemisphere is now moving into the hot season. Mm-hmm. Because the Southern Hemisphere is much more largely oceanic than the Northern Hemisphere, and the ocean takes in a lot of heat but move, moves it around and moves it deeper and so on, it doesn't yeah. express at the surface to the same extent. Right. We're not going to see those same extremely high temperatures in this Southern Hemisphere summer that we saw in the Northern summer this year. But what we do have on top of that is an El Nino event. And one of the absolutely extraordinary things about what's happened this year so far is that the El Nino event itself, which involves warmer than average water in the Pacific and usually raises global temperatures by some fractions of a degree, which is quite noticeable. Um, The hottest years on record have been El Nino years in recent decades. What is extraordinary is that the highest global temperatures associated with El Nino events occur in the year after the event starts. These events start around June, July, and then they progress through a a series of development phases. They usually peak around December, January, and then they start to taper off, and by April, May, they're over. And that's always the way they work because they're tied in with various seasonal cycles in the atmosphere and the ocean. Right. So we would expect the highest temperatures to actually be next year, given that history, rather than this year. So the fact that we've seen these extraordinary temperatures is not only attributable, and in fact, it's not even largely attributable, I don't think, to the development of the El Nino event in the Pacific. I think we're going to see the impact of that next year 
And this year, what we've seen is the planetary system responding to what is effectively a very large kick, which is the fact that we've got global temperatures rising to 1.4 degrees above pre-industrial, and that rise accelerating in recent decades due to the greenhouse gases accumulating in the atmosphere and all of the land use change, land clearing, deforestation, and all the other changes that we've made to the Earth's surface. Right, so it's a ramping up of the negative feedback loop. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're actually positive feedback. No, I know, but in my mind, they're psychologically negative. But yes, it is positive because it's going up and not backwards. Oh, no, absolutely. And it is accelerating. And the other thing that, uh, you know, I think is important to realize is that scientists like myself have been telling the world through our research and through the talks we give and so on that this is coming, that this is what we expect to see with global heating ongoing in the way that it is. But these are amongst the the scale of impacts that we weren't expecting to see just yet. You know, so your we models were, were more conservative. They were more conservative. And the fact that we're exceeding what was expected at this early stage, and it is a relatively early stage in the way we'd understood how the planetary system might react, that is very concerning. Because while we wouldn't expect every year from now on to be like this year, of course not, it's extraordinary and extreme, we would expect this type of thing to occur more and more frequently as the world continues to heat. Because it's going to. Greenhouse gas emissions still rise. Yeah, that's right. Well, and the UN uh, Environment Program says in, in a report that's just come out in the, in the, in the days leading up to this, this COP28 meeting, uh, makes the point there's no person or economy left on the planet that is going to be left unchanged by climate change. Uh, and even in the most optimistic scenario, the likelihood of limiting warm, warming to 1.5 degrees, which was certainly the Paris target, right? It says, the organisation says, there's only a 14% chance of actually achieving that now from where we are. So this is sort of being fumbled in real time. It is being fumbled in real time. And, you know, one of the things I've been reflecting on is that now for, oh, since at least 2000 and possibly before, there's been messaging around this being the critical decade. We're in the critical decade in the 2000s in which decisive action and effective policies and targets and deadlines need to be in place to reduce emissions and phase out fossil fuels. Then it was the 2010s. Yeah. Now it's now, and I noticed that uh, the UN Secretary General is, is talking about this is the critical decade, we have to get it right. And while I applaud that general messaging of urgency, I think the critical decade is not urgent enough. Well, it sounds like it actually passed and now it's like clean up now. Well, Well, I I think it's the critical year. I don't think it's the critical decade. There's there's problems with it sort of from a messaging point of view because, Mm. uh, you know, obviously you can't change the past so you're always talking about what you can do from where you are now, right? Sure. Uh, So that that part, the psychology of of that is understandable. But the ongoing claim that you are at the... Uh, you know, the moment of crisis and then a year later you're even closer to the moment of crisis and so forth. I mean, that's literally true, but at the same time it starts to become, you know, boy cried wolf 
type thing in a lot of people's minds. Exactly. You know, you said that last year and we're still here sort of thing. Mm. Um, and politicians, cynical politicians have traded on that. The whole campaign, the whole project against addressing climate change has been about weaponising that doubt, weaponising that sort of, yeah. uh, um, uh, you know, the kind of rhetoric, using it against it and saying, well, you know, look, everything's not as bad as they say and, mm. and so forth. Well, it's ongoing. And yeah, and I think there's a there's a a factor in there of sort of fatigue on yeah. the part of the audience that mm. one's talking to, as well. You know, disaster after disaster, pressure after pressure. It, it intrigues me that the world was capable of pulling together, accepting draconian measures, mobilizing vast amounts of money, and working collaboratively internationally when COVID mm. happened. And achieved extraordinary things, achieved viable vaccines in less than a year, which was unheard of. And what was the critical difference? The critical difference, I think people were afraid they were going to die. Precisely. Immediately. It was a here and now crisis, right? And this has been the problem with climate change and the relationship between climate change and politics, climate change and economics, climate change and the ambitions of nation states and so forth, has been that this is a problem that is happening over over the horizon all the time. Mm. Uh, and we are now starting to get these quite dramatic effects. I mean, Kenya at the moment is is in the grip of deadly floods, lots of people dying, mm. and this is on the back of an uh, absolutely long-sustained drought, which is classic mm. sort of, um, you know, kind of boom-bust cycle, much more volatile weather exactly. situations that you see that we were told to expect and we're sort of seeing them play out now. Mm. And some pe- lots of people... Apparently, are still in some level of denial about it. They always want to say that individual weather events aren't, you know, attributable to climate change, for example. But that sort of attribution, I, I think, is is being pretty compre or lack of attribution to climate change has been pretty comprehensively knocked on the head um, by the more recent science, which has been able to show just how many times more likely a particular heat wave or mm. a particularly flood-prone period or delay of the Indian monsoon or whatever extreme bad fire season has become or is now because of the underlying signal of global heat. I mean, you're right. So right. that's being done. Yeah. That's true. But, but I mean, people still, are, as you say, they're weaponizing probability. this information. That's why people no, gamble, don't. right? Yeah. Like if you actually, if more people understood probability, I don't. You, you just wouldn't see people gambling at the same rate that they would because it's a losing proposition. Well, it's why people smoke, frankly. Well, it's yeah, that same sort yeah, of thing, right? The, 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 the problem's down the track. I mean, there's actually like, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I don't know, but I'd be, I'd be willing to guess that um, the number of people that have actually died from a climate-related cause probably far exceeds COVID, especially if oh, we yeah. start counting from, from 2010, if well, we just think about, you know, the impact of climate on wars, the impact of climate on food systems, on, on flood systems, but also like in Western democratic countries where you don't experience wars, like just the number of people dying from heat stroke and, yeah. and other related diseases. And none of this is part of our public discourse. Instead, our public discourse is about small modular nuclear, which has not been built anywhere in the world and is a red herring and a fantasy mm-hmm. small, and a distraction. Yeah, small modular news as well in a sense, which Indeed. is sort of compartmentalising these stories rather yes. than seeing the pattern. I mean, you mentioned before the Indian monsoon. 
uh, last year, I think it was, that, that you know, Pakistan, a third of the country or something was underwater. Yes. I mean, this was for months. Yeah. And this, this is a catastrophic event of, you know, Absolutely. huge dislocation, deaths, mm. and, and so forth. Uh, I, I heard some statistics in, in the last week. I can't quote them exactly now, but it was a terrible figure for the level of uh, um, malnutrition of Pakistani youth. Mm. And some of this is directly attributable to all of that land, agriculture lost, and 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 the suffering, dislocation mm. associated with uh, with those weather extremes, with that flood and other things. So, mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, the the the, the suffering caused the, the 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 deaths and and suffering caused by climate change, um, climate events, easily dwarf everything else. And I think you know something else that we need to bear in mind is is that the emissions that are the reason why we have this accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, that is trapping heat and causing the temperatures to rise. It's it's basically disturbed the Earth's energy balance. Mm. Normally, you know, without all of, of this going on without us, there would be a balanced system which maintained Earth's temperature um, in a viable for the type of life that we have situation for millions of years, many millions of years. Now we're in a situation where humans have intervened to the extent that we have altered that balance. We've increased these gases in the atmosphere that is trapping heat that would otherwise be exiting through the top of the atmosphere and keeping the whole system in balance. So it is out of balance. And And that's why I Forming a new equilibria. And we're not in a new equilibrium. But it's, we don't even know where it will, no, it will land, right? But we that's don't. what we're actually doing. And that's where when you talk about you know, a 1.5 degree target or a 2 degree target by the end of the century, what we're actually saying is that we want the temperature to stabilise at 1.5 or 2 degrees or whatever level and, and by even, the end of yeah. the century. And that's the new equilibrium so that there will be occasional small overshoots and occasional small drops below that. But that's going to be the new equilibrium. And does the modelling show that you can have something approximating a functioning equilibrium at that increased level? I mean, can you, for example, dial up the temperature by 2.4 degrees, let's say, and say you could stop it there? Does does the modelling suggest that you wouldn't have... Uh, such volatility in the system that there'd be sort of chaos effect? No, no, no. You would still have the the new equilibrium would include greater extremes and volatility than we've seen up to now, except perhaps for this year, which is a sort of forerunner, a harbinger of of what Mm. we're facing if we go that far. That becomes kind of the new normal. Right. But the new normal would involve the kinds of… So the new normal is not… But the new Fantastic. normal, no, precisely, because it would involve the kinds of hurricanes and cyclones yes. and 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 extreme weather events yes, that we see would. now dominating the news in ways that they yes. they didn't used to, just because of their frequency and their severity. That's right. Um, which George but, goes to this this whole loss and damage thing you mentioned yeah. before. Um, tell us about what that mechanism is and why that is now back on the agenda. Yeah, but uh, I also wanted to point here that 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 new normal, new normal, is catastrophic for some communities. Yes, yes. Like communities uh, in local Alto nations like Kiribati, Tuvalu, Marshall Islands, Maldives, yeah. uh, but also Miami, um, yes. you know, in parts of Bangladesh, mm. um, that sea level rise will actually inundate 
land in these places where they are actually living, and, growing and agriculture. That's right. And it does mean that some other areas, even irrespective of whether they're low-lying or not, will become more arid and other yeah. areas, you know, would, would, and these might be areas that at the moment produce- Our food bowl, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that, that new normal also is one of the reasons why you have loss and damage, the push to start thinking of a mechanism that looks at where adaptation can no longer be possible in land- or mm. on sea for these communities. And that the only thing to do is migrate or relocate. And some of these uh, movements to relocate into inland or thinking of relocation to other countries um, is what this idea of the mechanism that loss and damage will help support. And crudely put, and I'm sure you'll put this better, but it's essentially the industrial industrialized world paying for some of this, mm. like paying into a fund so that those uh, developing countries that are severely disadvantaged, mm. as you say, uh, massive dislocation and, and so forth, that, that that fund can be used to address those problems. So that's what's been happening this year um, in terms of the, conver- um, the dialogue and negotiations around the transitional committee to find out where that funding can come from, the modality and how it will be dispersed and how countries will will, will sort of take this on and what are the issues. We've identified this as we need to do something about loss and damage. This was actually introduced back in 1990, 1992, when um, UNFCC was drawn up, but it was only picked up in uh, Paris. And what it is, is that vision looking forward that we will be uh, living in a world where we do need funding that is not adaptation, but funding for communities, uh, especially local communities, because it won't be full states, it will be local communities can have access to the fact that they will have to uh, move. And that's what um, this idea of the loss and damage. But at the moment, uh, we're still out. Uh, We haven't decided on where it will come from, how it will be dispersed, which mechanism will it be with the World Bank or will it be a new institution altogether? Um, so the transitional fifth committee have completed that negotiation and they're putting it to COP28, uh, um, Dubai. Many countries want to rip it apart and start all over, but that, that, that's the strategies of these negotiations. Mm. But countries from the Pacific and are pushing for, no, it's time to to get this up and running. And, you know, there was a move a few years ago. And I know I'm not an expert on this. You'd know more about it, George. But I know that there was some talk about perhaps having all 198 countries represented at a COP, uh, you know, wasn't leading to rapid action, the sort of rapid action that we need. Maybe we should be limiting these talks to the countries that are the most responsible for emissions, which are basically the industrialised countries. Um, And that, that effectively the G20 and a few others. So mm, that's an idea. But you know, to me and to a lot of other people, and I'm glad to see that we still have the, the COP in its entirety, the role of groups like the small island states, for example, has been absolutely crucial because without having this forum where the countries of Africa most affected, yeah. the countries of the Asia Pacific most affected, yeah, the countries of the Indian Ocean, yeah. etc., can get together with a, a voice that is powerful in a forum where they must be heard, you're, that is almost too easy to ignore yeah. by those with more economic clout. 
Oh, well, they'll just create agreements that suit themselves and well, then exactly. congratulate them on the, themselves on the back for the exactly. progress they've made. And, you know, it, it yeah. was the countries of the small island states that really pushed for the 1.5 degree target to be recognized in Paris. Mm. The, the, the talk prior to that had been, you know, two degrees is the target. That was actually decided in Copenhagen. Uh, and it, I was in the room when, when the uh, chair who was the, the then um, Prime Minister of Denmark, I might have got that wrong. He then went on to head NATO um, for a while. He he said to this room of of more than two thousand scientists, "Well, you know, what are we negotiating for? Is it, you know, what's the target? What do we think is safe?" Mm. The Framework Convention on Climate Change that the COP is based upon and around says, you know, limit warming to something that is safe. But it doesn't actually specify what that is because we didn't know in 1992. And in Copenhagen, we didn't really know either. And eventually there was this sort of pin drop moment where he said, you know, is it two degrees? And the room was sort of silent. And he said, okay, two degrees. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's how we came to yeah. that. But, you know, 1.5 is even that is not safe for many Pacific Island and Indian Ocean and Caribbean nations. No, that's right. They're still and underwater. Precisely. And 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 I suppose the sort of the, the, the moral dimension of the global politics here is that Global South, uh, yeah. developed nations are saying, hang on, so you want us to essentially pay for the costs of your lifestyle, of your improved living standards over the last century. You've, you've industrialised, mm -hmm. you've changed the climate in the process and now you're telling us what we can and can't do and you're not even prepared to pay for it. There was this whole idea of common but differentiated responsibility yeah. that you know, played out all the way through to Paris where the developed countries were the ones with targets and the developing countries were not under the yeah. Kyoto Protocol. And this Protocol. is Morrison had a big problem with China in this regard because, of Absolutely. course, China is a huge emitter but still Absolutely. regarded as a developing economy. Yep, and there were big problems with that. But how do you start? Where do you start? And I think you know the Kyoto Protocol, from my point of view, was a good start. The targets were lamentably tiny, and and even never then, enough. Australia negotiated an increase rather than a decrease. Absolutely ridiculous. And unfortunately, for many years, Australia has, in the negotiations, played a blocking role in terms of progress on many aspects of yeah. of getting things moving in the COPs. Um, hopefully, that's, we're past that. Well, I was going to say that was what uh, was in my mind when I was saying before about the lowest common denominator, yeah, that nations exactly. could sort of buy in and frustrate progress, yes. slow things down exactly. because they perceived a disadvantage would accrue to them, and uh, and that and so that ended up being so. So in a sense, COP is like the art of the possible on steroids. You know, it's the sort of global version of mm. of of that famous production of politics. And mm. uh, unfortunately, the problems just sort of getting closer and more extreme all the time. Well, I mean, in some ways, the the language we use is really important. Like in some respects, the problem is actually in the rearview mirror. You know, like we can already see what we have already done and like language like a, like a new normal, right? Like in some ways that's actually kind of comforting, a new normal, like, oh, okay, normal is, is mm -hmm. my, you know, but really it's we're talking about a new baseline. Right. Yes. Right, that's you know. True, actually. That's um, true. Which, um, which variation yeah. will happen from. And, 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 the, and your language of safety I think is a much more useful construction because it's, it's really not about 
normality. It's about the fact that, you know, the, the reality is, is that the human societies we have organized now will, will clearly not be sustainable in the same exact ways no. in 20 years' time or 50 years' time as they are now. We'll be living differently in different organized civilizations and, um, you know, places that were you could live in in a certain way may not be possible to live like that anymore because they're underwater, because they're too dry, because they're too wet. Or too hot. Or too hot. Yep. You know. Um, Absolutely. Yes. So, and I, I agree with that. And I think language is extremely important. And, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone of probably potentially using the wrong words to describe things. But, you know, it's I absolutely difficult. agree. It's really I, difficult. I refer yeah. now to global heating. I do not talk about global warming or just climate change anymore. Warming is too new. No, it's not a it's neutral term, but it's comforting. a benign term. Yeah. Mm. And that's not what's happening. It's, you know, we are heating the planet and we are heating it to unsustainable levels. The other thing that I, the other sort of area of language that I think has perhaps contributed a bit to some some of the slowness of action has been around sustainability and resilience. You know, when we have to adapt. We are already adapting to the impacts of global heating because we've had to. We've done it without necessarily even thinking about it. There's been enormous changes in Australian agriculture, for example, really innovative developments, very low water use for production of crops like rice, which are, are a water-hungry it's a water-hungry crop. But you know, various strategies that have been implemented. Uh, different ag- forms of agriculture have moved to different parts of Australia because the conditions are not suitable. We heard, I think it was last week, about a large hazelnut growing enterprise um, in the eastern part of Australia that's being closed down by the makers of some of those things we like to eat, like Nutella and Ferrero Rocher and so on, mm. uh, because it's not viable long term to be growing that kind of crop in that area and it's not a good investment, so they're pulling out. These sorts of changes are happening all the time and we are adapting and we will have to adapt much more as we go forward. One of the things, though, that I think is not logical or sensible, rational really, is this idea that it costs too much to make the changes we need to make. It will affect our lifestyle too much. Well, this is the this is the big deficit here in this argument all the way through, exactly. isn't it? You know, people just not putting on the balance sheet what it costs not to adapt. Whereas yeah. if we don't, yeah. the costs are so many times greater. The impact on the lifestyles of both our ourselves as we get older and older uh, and live longer potentially and those of our children and and their descendants and so on, will be impacted enormously by what we've set in train. And we become, history will show the generations that didn't care enough. Yes, mm. exactly. didn't care and enough did not to act fast enough yes. when we could. When we could. Now, we're going to have to wrap things oh. up now. So um, I think we've probably been going a long time. This is such a fascinating conversation and we could keep going, but uh, I guess we'll um, we'll obey the sort of, you know, the the, the, the immutable laws of podcast logic and uh, wrap it up about there. But it's been really terrific uh, having this conversation, Dr. George Carter, Professor Jeanette Lindsay and you, Maria, of course. Thanks, everyone, for uh, for that conversation. Let's hope that we see a, um, you know, some some material steps forward in this in this challenge at, in the UAE in a week's time. Absolutely. Good luck, George. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Oh, yes. <laughs> That's Democracy Sausage. We'll talk to you again next week. Until then, bye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.